light, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1, get out your in uh, your sermon notes, and uh, as some of you know, we've been given lots of books, and they're at the office, they're now organized uh, by box, they're all different kinds, we have cookbooks, and diet and health books, and history books, and fiction, and nonfiction, and there's a lot of uh, theology, and Christian books, and there's like two cases of an assortment of Bibles. So, the uh, I have here a brand new, doesn't look like it's ever been used, NIV study Bible, leather, who needs a nice leather study Bible? Anyone? Over here? It is yours. There you go. So, the gentleman who donated had worked with the International Bible Society. So if you're going to have a Bible study, we've already had two folks come in and get Bibles for neighborhood Bible studies or Bible studies that they do, other activities, other people. Uh, let us know, because um, we have lots. So, And if you have ones that you just want to be able to give away, we have lots of New Testaments, uh, the small ones that you can just give to people. So that would be great. Uh, we're going to go through Ephesians 1, uh, at least the first half. Uh, as we go through, I'll, we'll read it in a minute, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we desperately need it. We need to be reminded of why the gospel is so important. We need the forgiveness of sins. We need the redemption of our souls. We need to be adopted as much-loved children of God. We need Jesus and all that he is and all that he does. And so this morning we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. Amen. Amen. You need to use your imagination this morning. The, uh, I want you to imagine for a moment a typical macho college guy. We'll call him Biff. And Biff is into the whole college scene. He sees himself as a skin-wrapped package of taste buds and hormones. And so with this perception of himself, how do you think Biff spends his time? By eating and chasing girls. He eats anything and everything in sight without regard for nutritional value. And he chases just about anything wearing a skirt. But Biff has a special gleam in his eye for one particular cheerleader. We'll call her Buffy. And so one day, Biff is chasing Buffy around campus, and the track coach notices him. Hey, that kid can really run. So when the coach finally catches up with Biff, he says, why don't you come out for the track team? Nah, Biff answers, watching for Buffy out of the corner of his eye. I'm too busy. But the coach wasn't about to take no for an answer, and he finally convinces Biff to give track a try. So Biff starts working out with the track team and discovered he really could run. He changed his eating habits and his sleeping habits, and his skills started to improve significantly. In fact, he started winning some races, 
and posting some excellent times. Finally, Biff is invited to the big race at the conference tournament. He arrives early to stretch and warm up, and then only a few minutes before his event, guess who shows up? That's right, Buffy. And she slides up behind Biff, whispers, hey Biff, missed you. Come away with me, I'll make you your favorite apple pie. Biff doesn't even look at her. No way, Buff. Why not? Because now I'm a runner. So what happened to Biff? What happened to all those taste buds and hormones? Isn't he the same guy could pack away three burgers, two large fries, and a supersized shake without even batting an eye? Isn't he the same guy who was chasing the beautiful Buffy all over campus? Yes, he is still the same guy, but his perception of himself has changed. He no longer sees himself as just a bundle of physical needs, but now he's a disciplined runner. And runners run. And he came to the tournament to run, not to eat and not to chase Buffy. So let's take the illustration one step farther. And let's forget about Biff and say the runner is Eric Liddell. He was the runner who's the subject of the movie Chariots of Fire, the movie that everybody knows the music to, but nobody's ever seen. <laughs> Eric Liddell was committed to Christ, but he was also very fast, and he represented Scotland at the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris. And when the race schedule was posted for his event, Eric Liddell discovered that the heats for his race the preliminary races uh, for his race, which was 100 meters, was to be run on Sunday. And one of the ways that Eric Liddell was committed to God was by not running on Sundays. So he withdrew from the race that he should have won. So why didn't Eric Liddell, who was a runner, run? Because before he was a runner, he was a child of God. His perception of himself was as a Christian first and a runner second. And that determined what he did. Now, the rest of the story is that Eric Liddell did wind up running and winning a different event, the 400 meters, which he hadn't even trained for. And all in all, it's an amazing story, but it gets better because he eventually returned to northern China where he was born to serve as a missionary like his parents first in Tianjin and later in the town of Zhaozhang. And during World War II, the Japanese carried, uh, captured the mission station that he served at. And he was interned in an internment camp. And he died in that camp of overwork, malnourishment, and an inoperable brain tumor on February 21st, 1945, five months before the camp was liberated. His good friend in the camp and future theologian Langdon Gilkey later said the entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. And according to another fellow missionary, his last words were, it's complete surrender in reference to how he'd given his life to God. So what does all this have to do with Ephesians 1? It all has to do with how you perceive yourself, and whether you perceive yourself positively or negatively, and whether you perceive, perceive yourself as a Christian, and what does that mean? 
One of the main reasons that so many Christians today are not growing in the Christian life and are not enjoying the Christian life is because they don't have the correct perception of themselves. They don't see themselves as they really are in Christ. They don't understand what that two-word uh, two little phrase, in Christ, actually means. And understanding your identity in Christ is essential to your success at living the Christian life. No person can consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how they perceive themselves. If you see yourself as someone of little value, you'll live like someone of little value. But if you see yourself as a child of God who is spiritually alive in Christ, then you'll begin to live like it. Not that everything will be wonderful and rosy, but more and more, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and the two that I forgot, those are characteristics which describe Christ. And those are characteristics that will begin to describe you. And that's actually what the book of Ephesians is all about. Just as the Apostle Paul had a purpose for writing this letter, I have a purpose for preaching this letter. And therefore, we should have a purpose for hearing it and reading it and letting it soak in and change our lives. You know, Frank mentioned earlier, our community groups are starting up again, and I'm so glad. And I hope you've signed up for a community group on the city. If not, do that soon, because our community groups use a study guide based on the sermon, which means you get an Ephesians refresher several times a month. And that will help this letter to soak into and change your life. So, what is the purpose of this series on Ephesians? I want you to know right up front that I have two overarching goals for the next three months that we'll spend in Ephesians. First, simply that the truth of this letter will so grip your life that it'll change how you look at life. It'll change how you live your life. I've entitled this whole series, The Gospel Life. And that's because the truth of, of the gospel, as it's laid out in Ephesians, will enable you to see God and see others and see yourself with new eyes. This over here. And when you do that, when you see yourself with new eyes, you'll see eventually and gradually and perhaps incrementally, your conduct, your behavior, your words, your actions, most of all your attitudes will be affected. And that'll take place at school, at work, at home, even here at church. Because you'll want to start honoring Christ, glorifying God in how you live. And so if you come faithfully over the next few months and dive into this book of Ephesians with us, and I want you to read it carefully every week, the whole book. It's only six chapters. It'll take you about 20 minutes. Or you could read one chapter a day. I don't care. But read it. And listen intently to what's being said in its pages. And I believe that God the Holy Spirit will do a life-changing work in you. It will help you to love God's Word. It will help you to love Jesus. It will help you to love His people. And that's the gospel life. Second goal is not quite so obvious, but it's still important. And it's not only to change your life, but to understand the biblical text 
so you apply it to your life in the right way. Now, one of the best ways to determine content, to understand what the text says, is to find the themes of the text. And the themes are often found by looking for repetitions in the text, what key words are repeated over and over again. That's how you find a theme, and they sort of serve as guideposts to what the text means. So I want to start by reading and having you listen to the whole passage this morning, primarily because verses 3 to 14 is written as one sentence in, by the Apostle Paul. The whole thing is one sentence in the Greek. We break it up in the English, but in the Greek it's all one sentence. And these verses contain the theme for the book of Ephesians. So please listen carefully as this is God's word. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here starts the one sentence. Listen for the theme. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the, fulfill for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. <coughs> uh, excuse me. It's a long passage. And I read it too fast. But did you catch the theme? Twelve times in these 14 verses, the Apostle Paul talks about what it means to be in Christ. He says, in him, in the beloved, in Christ, through Christ, before Christ. The theme of the book of Ephesians is to be in Christ. That's what we're going to be looking at as we go through this book. The who, what, where, when, why, and how of being in Christ. And being in Christ is what leads to the gospel life. So let's go back and start at the beginning. 
Paul says something very interesting in verse 3, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Which sort of begs the question, what are those spiritual blessings? First of all, we have spiritual blessings in the church. That's the first blank, starting at verse 1. Spiritual blessings in the church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, notice what Paul says is true about the Christians in Ephesus. They're saints. They're faithful. They're in Christ. So right off the bat, we see that being a Christian isn't a matter of getting something. It's a matter of being someone. A Christian isn't somebody, somebody who simply gets forgiveness, who gets to go to heaven, who gets a new nature. A Christian, in terms of our deepest identity, is a saint, spiritually born again, a child of God, and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What you receive as a Christian isn't the main point. It's what you become. It's not what you do that determines who you are. It's who you are that determines what you do. One of the most frequently used words to describe Christians, actually in the whole New Testament, is this word saint. To be a saint is someone who is set apart for holiness, literally a holy person. And that's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? I mean, who qualifies for sainthood? About to make Mother Teresa a saint. She's pretty good, I think. You know, better than me. Better than you. Um, I mean, there must have been some pretty special people in this church in Ephesus to call them saints. I mean, if Paul was writing to the uh, church here in Leesburg, I seriously doubt he would have used the word saints. Wouldn't have been anyone left to read the letter. Ouch. Yet, in this letter, Paul uses the word saints simply to describe people who are in Christ. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, then you are a saint. Hard to believe, I know. It's probably harder to believe about the person sitting next to you. I mean, hey, I live with him. He ain't no saint, right? Well, I got news for you. Ephesians 1 says if they're in Christ, guess what? You're living with a saint. See, the Apostle Paul uses this word saint to describe common ordinary, everyday Christians like you and me. Let's jump over and look at how he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Notice that Paul doesn't say we're saints by hard work. He clearly says we're saints by calling. Got a Sunday school class on calling starting this morning. But a lot of people in the church, particularly in this country, have bought into the mentality that saints are people who have earned such a title by living better than the rest of us. 
or having achieved some high level of spiritual maturity. Nope, the Bible says you're a saint because God called you to be a saint. You were sanctified, made holy in Christ, made a saint through your union with Christ, who is actually the only true holy one. So let me ask you a question here. Are you a sinner who occasionally does something holy, or are you a saint who occasionally sins? Most of us would say we are sinners, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we were sinners, without hope and without God apart from Christ. But now in Christ we are saints, we are holy. Yes, we still commit sins, we still have to deal with sin, we still have to pay the consequences for sin, at least in this life but they no longer identify us. Now we're identified by God's call on our lives as saints. So if you're in Christ, then God sees you as he sees his only begotten son. And Paul thinks it's important for you to know exactly how God sees you in Christ. And he wants you to see yourself as God sees you in Christ. He wants you to see all of life through your identity in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you have an abundance of spiritual blessings from the Father, starting at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Before we dive too deep into this, let me ask another question. Where's the Apostle Paul writing from? He's writing from prison in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier. Now, if you were in that situation, what would you be writing about? I don't think I'd be writing about all my blessings. More likely, I'd be writing something like, Lord, get me out of here. Lord, what's going on? Lord, why are you doing this? Lord, what have I done to deserve this? Lord, how long is this going to last? But not Paul. The apostle is so overwhelmed by all he's received by being in Christ that he overflows with praise because he knows that he has received, verse 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what are those spiritual blessings? Well, first and foremost, we have been predestined and elected. I'm going to shorten that to say chosen. Predestined and elected. Look at verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us. Now, we could spend weeks on those two verses. I've got books on those two verses. Jesus told us in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now, but I want you to know a few things that are pretty important. First of all, we have been chosen, the text says, in love. God chose us because he loved us. Nothing else. And that's always been the case. We just finished the book of Exodus. Those people rebelled against God. They complained against God. They were remarkably ungrateful 
even after having been freed from 400 years of slavery in the most miraculous of ways. And yet we read about those people in Deuteronomy 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Nothing's changed. You don't deserve it, you haven't earned it, and you didn't choose it. He does, he chooses, he loves. And then we see that we're chosen, end of verse 5, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. We see not only did God choose you out of love, but he wanted to choose you. It was his divine will to choose you. Perhaps because in choosing you and me, everyone would be able to see that it's so unlikely, so unpredictable, so unconditional, that it has to be God. And so he'll get the glory and the praise for choosing what is, quite frankly, undesirable people. And yet he desired to do so. And that's why his grace is so glorious. But not only have we been predestined and elected, but we have been adopted. We have been adopted. Look again at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the believer's adoption into God's family is filled with assurances of the continuing love of the Heavenly Father. From this position in God's family flow a number of grace-supplied privileges. We're delivered from the penalty of the law. Galatians teaches us that at the very perfect time, God's time, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Galatians 4, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross for our sins was fully accepted by the Father as the demands of his righteous law were fully met. As a result, those who find refuge from the condemnation of the law in Christ find themselves fully accepted by the Heavenly Father as members of his family. Second, we're placed into a family we don't naturally belong. Ephesians 2, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, teaches us before we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit and faith came by hearing the gospel, we were children of wrath. But now, according to 1 John 3, we're children of God, fully accepted, sons and daughters of the King. We belong to him. We belong in his family. And therefore, we now have this intimate father-child relationship with God. Romans 8.15 says, We did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. As a result of this relationship, we're invited to pray and call him Father, Matthew 6. We receive his compassion, Psalm 103. We're assured of his love as he disciplines and trains us for righteousness, Hebrews 12. And we're forgiven, released from the punishment of our sins. Again, Matthew 6. 
our adoption by God in Christ is one of the most comforting doctrines in God's Word. If you're born again, take time to consider the richness of your position uh, before God as his child. Now, we have a number of adults and children in our congregation who've been adopted. And I think Christians should lead the world in adoption. In his book, A Hope Deferred, Adoption and the Fatherhood of God, Dr. Stephen Yuley writes, Regrettably, many people tend to view the adoption of a child as an afterthought. You couldn't have your own children, so you settled for adoption. All of his children are adopted. He says, having adopted, I will never describe it as settling, and I will never refer to it as an afterthought. In terms of God's adoption of us, he wasn't settling. God didn't create the world in the hope that he would have natural children, only to discover he had a bunch of little rebels on his hands. He didn't throw his hands in the air and say, oh no, what do I do now? I guess I could adopt. No, God predestined us for adoption. And he did so before the foundation of the world. That necessarily means that his adoption of us isn't plan B, it's plan A. And it means that his adoption of us is the purpose of his eternal will. This is a direct doctrine of the word of God that is played out in the practice of Christians. If you're interested, Russell Moore has a book, Adopted for Life. I encourage you to get it and read it. Start there. There's a ton of others. But we have been chosen and we have been adopted by God. The text goes on, revealing that we also have spiritual blessings in the Son, starting at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Spend most of the time on that verse. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, remember this is the middle part of one sentence, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That may be some of the most amazing verses in all of scripture. I've probably said that a whole bunch of times. But I'm continually astonished by the things that God says about us. Having been chosen and adopted by God the Father, we're now told about the blessings we have in the Son. And when you hear this list, at least when I do, I come to realize every part and parcel of my life is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Every success I've ever had and all my failures, and they are many, are covered by his blood. Places where I was foolish or mean even stupid, covered by the blood of Jesus. So what blessings does that bring us? Well, first, we're told we've been redeemed. Paul is explicit regarding the fact of redemption. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. What does that mean? Redemption is payment of a price or a ransom. The price is Christ's own blood, and the object is our souls. 
All humanity is in the slave market of sin and thus powerless to effect deliverance, but Christ purchased his church with an infinite price, as the scriptures repeatedly state. 1 Peter 1, you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hebrews 9, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an e eternal redemption. So the first blessing is redemption. Next, we've been forgiven. As a believer, the Apostle Paul remained profoundly aware of his sinful life apart from Christ, and that he's still a sinner. He calls himself the chief of sinners. But along with this is the profound knowledge that he's forgiven. There are dozens and dozens of verses in the Bible that assert the forgiveness of sins. It's because of this massive scriptural affirmation that we conclude the Apostles' Creed, which we'll say in a little while, with, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. In fact, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, Matthew 26, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is something to celebrate. It's beyond anything that positive thinking or therapy can provide. It's complete, extending to the conscious and unconscious sins in our life because God knows all things and because Jesus' blood is infinite. We have been chosen and adopted by God. We've been redeemed and forgiven in the Son. But the text goes on revealing that we have spiritual blessings through the Spirit. It's a Trinitarian text. We receive the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. We learn at the moment we believed we were sealed in Christ. Verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit, who right now indwells us, is God's down payment on his own promise. As adopted children, we're the rightful heirs in Christ of a God-ordained inheritance. And the Holy Spirit's presence is proof. You were marked in him with a seal. You, know, you can uh, buy a seal or an imprint. I have one. Put the stamp of ownership on your books. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is the seal or the imprint that God makes on our hearts. It means that we are God's own possession and we're under his protection and our heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh so that God could imprint it with the Holy Spirit who is his seal. We have blessings from the Father. We have blessings in the Son. And we have blessings through the Spirit. Let me ask you another question. How many of you keep a to-do list? It's an actual question. All right, lots of to-do lists. I bet if I went into each of your homes or computers or pocketbooks or smartphones, I could find some sort of to-do list. Everybody's got a to-do list. Some of you have multiple to-do lists. Some of you have to-do lists for other people. 
we'll pray for you. But everybody has a to-do list. How do you function without a to-do list? I often find myself at the end of the day, you know, walking into the house, and Joanne will ask me, how was your day? And I'll say, oh, I had a great day. I got a lot done. Or I'll say, I didn't have such a good day. I didn't get much done. As if what I've done at the end of the day justifies my existence. One author says we're so caught up in that type of thinking that we shouldn't be called human beings. We should be called human doings. Because most of the time we're not about being. We're about doing. Well, right here in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul says loud and clear, Beloved, before God wants you to do anything, he wants you to be in Christ. You have to be in him before you can do anything for him. And that means when God looks at the world, he sees two kinds of people, saints and sinners, those who are in Christ and those who are not. That's something very significant for you this morning. It means that when God looks at you, he sees you in Christ, a saint made holy, freed by Christ from the power of sin. Or it means that when God looks at you, he sees you without Christ, in rebellion against God, a slave struggling under the bondage of sin. Those are the options. The freedom of being a saint in Christ or the bondage of being a slave to sin. Now, perhaps you spent years in church and you're a faithful attender. Or perhaps this church stuff is relatively new to you. You've just gotten interested in it. It doesn't matter. When it comes down to whether or not you're in Christ or without Christ, it comes down to whether or not you believe in the name of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners and whether you've received him as your Lord and Savior. If you have amen, you're a saint. You're in Christ. But if you haven't, stop. Take time to open a Bible. If you don't have one, I'll give one to you. I now have lots. But open a Bible and read for yourself what Jesus did and what Jesus said and examine for yourself the claims of Christ and what the Bible uh, teaches about what it means to be in Christ. We can have the wrong perceptions about God. And we can have the wrong perceptions about ourselves. Some people look at their lives and feel they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. They have confidence in their own righteousness and feel okay because of the long list of good deeds they've done. Others look at their lives and see their own sinfulness, and that's all they can see. Sin after sin, week after week, year after year. I really like Brennan Manning's analysis of this situation He's with the Lord now, but he wrote a great book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And put that on your list someday. It's a great book. He writes, grace calls you out. You are not just a disillusioned old man who may die soon, or a middle-aged woman stuck in a job and desperately wanting to get out, or a young person feeling the fire in the belly begin to grow cold. You may be insecure, inadequate, mistaken, or pot-bellied. Death, panic, depression, and disillusionment may be near you, but you are not just that. You are accepted. Never confuse your perception of yourself with the mystery that you are really accepted. Are we sinful? Yes. But God knows that, and he still accepts us in Christ. 
He won't accept my sin, but then again, he doesn't have to because he's already paid for it in Christ. And I do the grace of God a disservice when I let my own perception of myself conflict with the fact that I am his adopted child by grace through faith in Christ. God didn't have to adopt me. He didn't have to choose us. He didn't have to save us. He didn't have to accept us, but he did. He did adopt us. He did choose us. He did save us, and he does accept us, all because he loves us. The gospel says you're a sinner, and Jesus Christ died for your sins. The world doesn't believe that. The gospel says that even when you are faithless, the faithful God has forgiven your past, laid claim on your life, and secured your future. The world doesn't believe that. The gospel says that even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Christ died for you, rose from the dead in victory over your sins, gives purpose to your life now, and is coming again to claim you for all eternity. The world doesn't believe that, but you do. And when you trust in Christ for salvation, as he is revealed in the gospel, then you are in Christ. All these blessings are yours. You are chosen, you are adopted, you are redeemed, you are forgiven. And he invites you to come to his table and have fellowship with him. Let's prepare to do that right now. Thank him, you need to pray. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Teach us the surpassing value of being in Christ. Let us rejoice in the knowledge that we've been chosen and adopted by the Father, redeemed and forgiven by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. Let us now come to the Lord's table to be with the one who died for us and covered our sins with his blood and grant that knowing all this may result in changed lives. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. This is a responsive blessing today, so you'll need your little insert or not. You can just see that. Go forth with great joy to proclaim the good news of the gospel. We go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. God bless you. We'll see you at the picnic.